Hello, and welcome to the Nautcast. Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 47th episode of the Nauticast entitled Bed of Blood, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Edward 13, in which Ned Stark visits his best friend and king on his deathbed, writes out his will, and negotiates the power vacuum that follows. Mm, it's going to be very exciting this week. This episode is brought to you by our small council, as always, our hand of the king, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, and finally, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, as always. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So before we get into the meat of this week's episode, we wanted to announce that uh, one of our new rewards for Patreon, if we get to $5,000 a month, is going to be episodes tackling the assorted works of George R. R. Martin beyond oh. the Song of Ice and Fire. We have put out a question if people would be interested on this on Twitter, and there were some very positive responses. So we're going to have special episodes covering, say, Fever Dream, yeah. Dying of the Light, Sand yeah. Kings, any of the other... Any of the other great works done by George R. R. Martin outside the world of Westeros, if we get to $5,000 a month, along with several other rewards you can check out on our Patreon if you have not already at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. And if you are a patron of ours, we're going to be releasing to you our next special episode at the end of this month, our third one covering Fire and Blood Volume 1. This one covering the part of the story that I was arguably looking forward to even more than <laughs> Harris and Alison, the Regency of Egan Third and the Hour of the Wolf, and all that yeah. badass stuff coming right at the end of that volume and around the middle of the Targaryen regime of Westeros. So, go ahead and check out patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOIAF if you haven't already to get uh, that special episode later this month, and if you contribute to get us towards that 5000 a month goal to get episodes covering works by George R. R. Martin outside of Song of Ice and Fire. And just as, a, just as a quick thing, I know that some people have been like, oh my goodness, if, if you guys do that, are you not going to be doing our special... Song of Ice and Fire Patreon episodes, and no, we will still do those every month. We will also have an additional Patreon-only episode for covering the works of George R. R. Martin in the expanded Not a Song of Ice and Fire, because, of course, Song of Ice and Fire is not connected to all the other worlds. It's not in the Thousand Worlds. Don't don't anyone and anyone here come, come at us with that. But mm-hmm. we will be covering different books if we get to that $5,000 a month goal, and I think we will hit that at some point, so look forward to that. And it'll be fun to kind of get into a little bit more of Martin's headspace here, which will be a lot of fun to cover here, hopefully in a few months or so. Absolutely. Now, moving on to our question for the week. It comes from Sir Andrew B., a sworn sword, and he asks, Dear Amen Brothers, love the continuing (laughs) efforts and thank you for the abundance of Christmas content. My question touches on something you've been talking about and touching on indirectly for a while, both in the regular show and in the fantastic Always Worth the Pledge Patreon episodes. (laughs) Apart from Tyrion, the Lannisters really don't seem to have much to do with the Endgame, do they? With Cersei and Jaime likely going out during Egan's invasion and Dance 2.0, Tommen and Marcella being so very, very doomed, and the rest being only minor characters, the chances of an important Lannister presence beyond the possible Silent Lion just aren't there. What does it say that this family that has been so central to the story of the series will be all but gone before the end? Part of it, of course, is Tywin's enduring shitty legacy of being a <laughs> shitty person who didn't shit gold, but we all know that's not all. 
Thank you, Andrew. Well, thank you very much, Sir Andrew, for the question. And what do you think about that, Jeff? How do you see the Lannister role in the endgame playing out beyond just Tyrion being involved? Man, I, I, that's a great question. I, I think Tyrion's obviously going to be an endgame character at, at some level in A Song of Ice and Fire as well as in Game of Thrones. I think one of the things we talked about in our one of our Patreon episodes, I want to say, is that we're really kind of thinking that Cersei at this point in the books in The Dream of Spring would probably likely already be dead, but somehow she's still alive in the show. And the reason why she's alive is that Lady Hetty is a fantastic actress. Or let me do it again. And one of the reasons why is that Lena Headey is such a fantastic actor and she does great work. And I think they want to kind of keep her on screen because she has such a magnetic presence on, on the small screen. Now, whether that means Cersei is going to live through to a dream of spring. I mean, I think Em and I are both kind of squishy nose on that, I would say. Obviously, Jamie was going to be the Valonqar for Cersei, um, although that is in some dispute amongst in some corners of the fandom. But it's, it's clear to me that that Cersei is going to die. Now, the, Jamie is actually a more interesting question in my mind because he has in Storm, in his, when we finally get his POV chapters, he has that dream of the Weirwood dream where he's wielding a fiery sword seemingly against the others. Is that foreshadow the potential that he's going to be an endgame character? I mean, Jamie Lannister is my favorite point of view character, so I certainly hope that he's he's there doing something good and you kind of do hope that that might actually be his redemption because, guys, guess what? Jamie Lannister is not on a redemption arc yet. In, in case you're wondering, in case anyone else here is wondering, he's not there yet. But he could be if he decides to go north and fight the others and maybe he sacrifices himself in some way to save the Starks. Or save, It would be really cool, for instance, if he saves Bran's life at some point, sacrifices himself for that. It would be a nice kind of echoing from the first scene we get, the first real scene we get with Jamie where he pushes Bran out of the window. I mean, I think that Tyrion is the only guaranteed endgame Lannister character. And what does that say about the the family of House Lannister that's been so central to the first five books and is just not really going to be much of a presence at the end? I think it says that the legacy of of Tywin Lannister, as as our uh, as Sir Andrew put it, is shitty, and that him being a shitty person who didn't shit gold means that his legacy just crumbles around him. And I think that's something we've emphasized over and over in this podcast, and that the the Lannister power centers on them being powerful, but there's no really long-term political power structure there to ensure the legacy of Tywin Lannister continues beyond his gold, his legacy, and his own name. His kids can't hold up to Tywin Lannister's legacy, and the fact that they can't do that means that probably Tywin Le- Tywin's legacy is not all that great. We have the Northern Clansmen marching to save the Ned's Girl in the Dance with Dragons, and when Cersei Lannister gets arrested at the end of Feast for Crows – all of her friends just go out the wayside, except for, of course, Kyburn, who's maybe not really a friend. But I mean, I kind of like the idea that Joy Hill, who's also a character who's not been featured at all, will be the person that ends up inheriting Casterly Rock. Because I, I don't really want Tyrion to inherit Casterly Rock at the end of the series, especially if he continues going on this kind of very dark, winding, terrible road that he's on right now, especially post Storm of Swords. Well, he's he's really he's not a great character to begin with, but Dance is where he really gets. Very, very dark and gets very nihilistic and also gets kind of very uh, villain-esque. And I do hope that he redeems himself in the end. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I really want him to be holding Cashley Rock. It would be nice if Joy Hill, who's another bastard, another who's a Lancer bastard, was holding Cashley Rock at the end of the series. I think Tyrion's going to take Casterly Rock at some point in the books, especially given all that stuff about the drains and cisterns that he used to manage. It just seems like a gigantic clue that that's how he's going to get in. 
But I don't think he's going to hold it forever or be, be, you know, be sitting in its seat uh, at the end of the series. I very much doubt that. I would love Joy Hill taking it, especially since her name is such a refutation to Casterly Rock, which is basically Sad Mountain. So <laughs> her, her being named Joy Hill is just like the exact 100% opposite of that. So That's that would, great, yeah. That would be a nice closing of the loop. I would I would enjoy that very much. So thank you, Sir Andrew, for the question. And of course, we will see how House Lannister's fates turn out in season eight of Game of Thrones, which just got its premiere date announced. It's, it's kind of crazy to me thinking that it's the end of like kind of an eight year journey for me because I remember starting watching Game of Thrones in 2011. That was really my pathway into the books, uh, unlike smarter, more OG fans like Emmett here who was reading the books long before I was. I just didn't have a life, Jeff. You don't have to praise me too much. <laughs> but yeah, and I was saying this to you a little earlier. It's interesting because also we're getting to the end of the road with this show, but the show has changed so much. Like we're going to get six hour and a half episodes that are basically right. movies. Like that's just such a different show than season one and yeah. season two. And it's it's like the you know the classic annoying philosophical question of you replace all the parts in a car or all the skin cells in a human is it the same car is it the same person I kind uh-huh. of feel like that with Game of Thrones like yeah. so much has transformed that although we have been on this journey with it it's almost unrecognizable which is has been frustrating in many respects but it's also really <laughs> unique and compelling and I'm certainly glad to have been along for it yeah I'm I'm, I'm glad too because I got to meet you as a result of it so the oh, journey led, led to the best sort of destination possible. He's, he's such a softy. Uh, I got to kind of shake myself off that because we're getting into this chapter and he yeah. can't be soft in this chapter. You're about to read the synopsis of a nightmare. So have fun. Oh, my goodness. It's going to be so much fun. So, again, thanks for the question. Subscribe on Patreon if you want to ask us questions. But here is the synopsis for Game of Thrones, Eddard 13. Ned Stark dreamt an old dream of walking through the crypts of Winterfell and the Kings of Winter and their dire wolves looking at him as he trudges on to the tombs of Lyanna, Brandon, and his father Rickard. Promise me, Ned, Lyanna's statue whispers to him. A garland of pale roses crowns her head. Her eyes weep blood. Which, of course, is not at all foreshadowing at all, so moving on. And then Ned wakes from one nightmare and enters the next nightmare. His heart is racing. The blankets are tangled around him. A voice calls for him, loud. Groggy, Ned gets dressed and stumbles towards the door. Outside, his men Tomard and Kane, along with the King's steward, who is actually unnamed, which is interesting, await him to bring him news. Robert Baratheon has returned. Cersei, Jaime, Tywin, and Tyrion are all in exile, and the plot to assassinate Daenerys Targaryen has been called off. But, of course, no, wait, this is the Song of Ice and Fire. I forgot that for another moment. The men are here under the King's orders to bring, to bring Ned to... The men are here under the king's orders to bring Ned to Robert's chambers, but in very dramatic fashion. They don't tell Ned why they've, why Ned he needs to come to Robert's chambers. Hey guys, maybe like prep Ned for what he's about to experience. Yeah, maybe, maybe. No, of course not. Anyhow, Ned finishes getting ready and grabs the Valyrian steel dagger for plot-driven reasons. The party heads through the darkness of the Red Keep. At Mager's holdfast, Ned passes by three knights of the king's guard and has a chill, remembering something which, of course, is not at all the Tower of Joy. It is the Tower of Joy. He sees Barristan and notices that his face is as white as his armor. Not great, Bob. The royal steward announces Ned to Robert, and the hand enters to a warm room with fires blazing in the hearths that fill the room with a sullen red glare. And Robert? Robert was in bed with Grand Maester Pycelle hovering over him and Renly pacing in front of a window. And oh yeah, Cersei is there too at the edge of the bed. She seemed like she had just been woken, but her eyes were anything but sleepy. They follow Ned as he shambles into the room. At the bed, Robert is still wearing his boots, but on the floor beneath, Robert's clothing lies on the ground with red-brown blood stains. In fact, the entire room smells like death and blood. 
Robert calls Ned over to his bed, and Ned sees that his friend's face is pale. When he looks down, he sees how bad the wound is. A devil. My own fault. Too much wine. Damn me to hell. Miss my thrust. Ned demands to know where Renly and Barristan were while Robert was getting bored. Well, Robert had told them to kind of stay behind so that he could take the boar on by himself. Ned lifts the blanket and sees that Robert has and sees that Robert got gored from nip to dick with blood soaking through the fresh bandages that Picel had put on. Stinks. The stink of death. Don't think I can't smell it. Then Robert boasts of killing the pig by driving his knife through the animal's eyes, and he wants the boar roasted for his feast. And now everyone needs to GTFO except Ned. Cersei protests, but Robert tells her to GTFO. Everyone else gets up to leave, but Pycelle offers Robert some drugs. Yeah, here's some drugs, dude. Enjoy the drugs. Don't say anything interesting or uh, that would be potentially uh, harmful to the Lannisters or anyone else, right? But, of course, Robert, being Robert, knocks the milk of the poppy out of Pycelle's hands and reiterates that he wants everyone to make like a tree and leave. Now alone, Ned curses Robert for being headstrong, and Robert again brags about killing the pig. Robert then relates that Sir Robar Royce had found him before the boar incident and told him what Ned had done with Gregor. But Robert hadn't told Sandor as he thought to let Cersei surprise him with the news, for the lulls. But then Robert changes course. Daenerys. It was wrong for him to have ordered her death. And Ned was the only one who had urged him to do the right thing. The boar is the god's punishment for Robert ordering child murder. But hold that thought because Robert needs Ned to write a few things down. You see, Ned is going to write Big Bob's last will and testament. And here it is. The moment, and I'm going to read it in full. This is the will and word of Robert of House Baratheon, the first of his name, King of the Andals, and all the rest. Put in the damn titles, you know how it goes. I do hereby command Eddard of the House Stark, Lord of Winterfell, and Hand of the King to serve as Lord Regent and Protector of my realm upon my... upon my death, to rule in my stead until my son Joffrey just come of age. Robert, Joffrey is not your son, Ned wanted to say, but the words would not come. The agony was written too plainly across Robert's face. He could not hurt him more. So Ned bent his head and wrote, but where the king had said, My son Joffrey, he scrawled, My heir. The deceit made him feel soiled. The lies we tell for love, he thought. May the gods forgive me. Robert tells Ned to finish the rest of the will with all the titles and give it to the small council when he's dead. But Ned is overwhelmed with grief. Robert, you must not do this. Don't tie on me. The realm needs you. Robert, in Big Bob fashion, kind of takes Ned's hand and tells him that he's a bad liar. Besides... Robert says that he's nearly as bad as Eris. No, Ned told his dying friend. Not near so bad as Eris, your grace. Not near so bad as Eris. Robert tells Ned that he's going to hate ruling in his stead, but he's to serve the boar that killed Robert at his funeral feast. And he has one final command. The girl, Daenerys, let her live if you can. If it, not too late, talk to them. Varys, Littlefinger, don't let them kill her. And help my son, Ned. Make him be... Better than me. And yeah, this is really wrenching stuff, George. So thanks for making me feel sad. And I'm not usually some sort of crybaby who emotes like a real person, but here yeah, I am, like feeling very emotional about this scene. It's very sad. I mean, it's, it really is sad. I mean, ugh. I don't know. I don't know how to, how to like deal with this right now, like a real human being. Anyways, Robert gives leave for everyone to re enter the room, and Ned goes and lets them in. Renly, Pycelle, and the servants come rushing back into the room. Robert finally takes the milk of the poppy. Robert asks if he'll dream, and Ned says, most definitely thinking of his recent fever dream, that yes, he's going to dream. But then Robert tells Ned one final thing. Take care of my children for me. Ouch. Ned's nearly bowled over in grief, but then he remembers Bara, Maya, and Gendry. 
I shall. I shall guard your children as if they were my own. Sleep finally overtakes Robert, and Pycelle tells Ned that his friend is basically good as dead. The crazy thing about it all is that Robert really should have been dead already, but he was fiercely clinging to life. Renly chimes in, looking like the ghost of Robert, that Robert was strong, but not wise. And man, it's real crazy how Big Bob still managed to bring the boar down while his guts were hanging out of him. Outside, Ned instructs Barristan that no one's disturbed Robert. And then Barristan, in very Barristan fashion, talks about how he's failed his sacred trust. Ned consoles him by saying that no one could protect Robert from Robert, hashtag true, but Robert was drinking a ton of wine. I wonder, Sir Barristan, Varus says, crawling out of whatever hellhole he was hiding in, who gave the king his wine? Ah, well, uh, you know, it was from Robert's own wineskin. And yeah, he had more than one drink for sure. His squire wouldn't assure that Big Bob never got thirsty. Such a dutiful boy to make certain his grace does not lack for refreshment. Uh-oh. Ned makes the connection immediately. Robert's squires were the two Lancer boys, Lancel and Tyrek. Lancel was the one in charge of the wine on this hunting trip. Vars intones darkly about hoping that the boy doesn't blame himself. Children are so vulnerable in the innocence of their youth. Ah, children. About that. Hey, Varus, can you call off the Danny assassination thing, please? No can do, brah. The birds have already flown. But sure, Varus will pretend to try to call off the assassination plot. Ned descends from the tower down to the bridge across the dry moat when the voice of a terrorist mastermind stops him. It's Renly. He wants a moment of Ned's time, and he needs to speak with Ned alone. Renly asks after the letter, knowing that it's the letter granting Ned the regency and naming Ned as Lord Protector of the Realm. My lord, I have thirty men in my personal guard and other friends besides. Knights and lords, give me an hour and I can put a hundred swords in your hand. Huh? Why would Ned need those swords? To strike. Everybody's asleep now. We gotta separate Joffrey from Cersei. And you, Ned, holding Joffrey, you can seize the kingdom. And Cersei won't oppose Ned if he has Joffrey. Ned looks at this terrorist cold. Robert is not dead yet. The gods may spare him. And then later, I will not dishonor his last hours on earth by shedding blood in his halls and dragging frightened children from their beds. But Renly's not letting this go. Keep delaying and you're going to get us all killed. There's small chance that Robert's going to live. Well, the gods can be merciful, Ned sort of retorts. The Lannisters are not, Renly replies, before slithering away like a garbage tank to go run away like a coward. Ned gets back to his chambers wondering if he's made the right call to refuse Renly. He remembers Cersei's words about when you play the Song of Thrones and fire, you win or you die or something. Is that the phrase? I don't remember. 100%. If, yeah. <laughs> good. Nailed it. If Cersei decided to play Brinkman, Ned might have need of Renly's swords. He summons Littlefinger, but he has more instructions. Tomer, get ready to take the girls aboard a ship real soon, and would you kindly take a letter that I'm about to write to Lord Stannis on Dragonstone? And please don't let anyone else besides Stannis read it. Thanks. After Ned's men departs, Ned looks into the flames of his candle in front of him, grief overwhelming him. He wanted to get to a heart tree and pray for Robert, who had been more than a brother to him. And after all of this, the men would whisper that Ned Stark had betrayed Robert. He prayed that the gods would know him better and that Robert would know too in the afterlife. Mm. Again, wrenching. Ned rereads, Ned rereads Robert's last will and grabs a new parchment of paper. To his grace... Grace. You hear that, people? Grace. Mm. Stannis of the House Baratheon, he wrote. By the time you receive this letter, your brother Robert, our king these past 15 years, will be dead. He was savaged by a boar whilst hunting in the Kingswood. Did you hear that? Ned's referring to Stannis as his grace. He knows what's up, even if half the fucking fandom doesn't. Like poetry to my ears. Uh, oh my goodness, yeah. I am just like, my nipples are so erect right now. <laughs> Carry on, please, sir. Please do not cut that from the podcast. No, oh, of course not. That's all staying in. 
Ned signs the letter thinking that his regency is going to be super short. Yeah, it's going to be. Ned wants nothing more than to get back to Winterfell to hear Bran laughing, go hawking with Rob, watch Rickon playing. He wanted to go to sleep with his arms wrapped around Catelyn. And Jesus, come on, fucking George R. R. Martin. This is just cruel at this point, man. Like, we know what's about to happen. We're rereading this at this book at this point. <sighs> A moment later, Kane returns with Littlefinger, who proceeds to do Littlefinger things and congratulate Ned on his promotion to the as Lord Protector of the Realm. And can someone please put a fucking spear through this guy ASAP? Thanks. So anyways, why did Ned want Littlefinger here? Well, Ned has an announcement. I know the secret John Aaron was murdered to protect. Robert will leave no Triborn son behind him. Joffrey and Tommen are Jamie Lannister's bastard, born of his incestuous union with the queen. And then Littlefinger gasps in wonder, begs forgiveness from the gods for being such an asshole, and decides henceforth to be a true and noble man living up to his word. Right? Right? No. Again. Never. Shocking, Littlefinger says in a tone that suggested he was not shocked at all. The girl is well? No doubt. So when the king dies? Ah, well, then the throne goes to one true king, Stannis. Ned replies, probably dreamily thinking about how awesome it's going to be in a storm of swords when Stannis saves Westeros from wilding invasion. But no, Creepyfinger has another course to suggest. Stannis can't take the throne without Ned's help. Why not, you know, make sure Joffrey succeeds? It'll be funny. Ned stares at Littlefinger, probably wanting to choke him out again. When Ned challenges Littlefinger about whether he has a shred of honor, Littlefinger does hashtag just Littlefinger things and jokes about how he is a shred of honor or some shit. But regardless, let's, let's, you know, not allow Stannis to take the throne. Stannis ain't your friend. He ain't Littlefinger's friend. He's iron, hard, and unyielding, which Littlefinger, have you even read my essay about the subject? Bunch right. of jackals in this goddamn fandom, right? I tell ya. Ugh. Littlefinger continues on. Yes, Stannis will thank Ned for his crown, but it's going to mean war. Right, of course. That's what's going to cause the war, is Stannis taking the crown. <sighs> Tywin will rise, and so too will those lords, Robert Pardon, who fought for Aerys. Everyone's going to want to fuck Stannis' shit up, and the realm will fall into chaos and bloodshed. Shit, even Balon Greyjoy is going to want to fuck Stannis' shit up. He was one of the lords who rebelled against Robert at one point, and Stannis is not going to forgive him. Right? Right? Wrong. But Littlefinger has a solution. Just, you know, seat Joffrey. It's fine. Really, make peace with Cersei and Tywin. Marry Sansa to Joffrey. Wed Arya to Tommen and marry Marcella to Rob. And for that matter, it's four years before Joffrey comes of age. And you'll be like a father to him. And if he's a shit king, well, then we'll dispose of him and put Renly onto the Iron Throne. We? Ned asks. Ah, yes. Littlefinger is going to be kind of sort of co-ruling, co-regenting with Ned here. A very modest price for the service he's about to render to Ned. Lord Baelish, what you suggest is treason. Only if we lose, Littlefinger replies. Then Ned gets Ned-like, thankfully. He won't forget John Aaron or Jory Cassell, and he won't forget this. Ned takes out the Valyrian steel dagger and puts it on the table between him and Littlefinger. Remember when Ned had that in his possession from earlier? Yeah, never to pay off, bitch. Ned's not going to forget any of that shit. Littlefinger sighs and pretends to be shocked again. So are we Stannis in war? It's not a choice for Ned. Stannis is the heir. Fuck yeah, Ned. Fuck yeah. Well then, what the fuck do you want from me, Ned? Littlefinger asks like a brat. Not his wisdom. Nope. Ned's not wanting any of Littlefinger's quote-unquote wisdom, aka treason. But Littlefinger, you did promise Catelyn that you would help Ned. And while Ned is Lord Protector, Joffrey is still technical son and heir to Robert. Plus, the Lannisters have a dozen knights and hundred men at arms at, his, at their beckoning call. And Jaime might be on his way back to King's Landing with an army on his back. And you without an army, Littlefinger says like a smartass. Littlefinger begins spinning the Lyrian steel dagger on the table, probably thinking about how it'll be the tits to put some dashboard confessional vinyl on his record player while he stares at a picture of Sansa in his heart locket when he gets back to his chambers. Well, 
You could call up Renly or Bronzion Royce or Surveillance Swan or Sir Loras, Lady Tanda, the Redwine Twins. Won't that be sufficient? Littlefinger kind of cajoles Ned. No, it's not going to be sufficient. The numbers don't hold. Plus, Ned isn't sure where they'd actually stand in a Ned versus Cersei confrontation. He needs more men. He needs the gold cloaks. Ah, but when the queen proclaims one king and the hand another, whose peace do they protect? Littlefinger flips the dagger with his fingers, sending it spinning on the table. At long, very dramatic last, the blade points to Littlefinger. Why, there's your answer. They follow the man who pays them. Then Littlefinger decides to do his usual shittery. He mocks Ned for being so honorable and thinks he's an idiot for thinking it keeps him safe. But no, honor only makes you heavy and unable to move. And unable to move. You know why you summoned me here. You know what you want to ask me to do. You know it has to be done. But it's not honorable. So the words stick in your throat. All right, everybody. Deep breath. Let out slowly. Fuck you, little finger. Whew. I'm really, I'm feeling better already, man. Aren't you feeling better? Therapeutic. Ah, very. Ned is furious and goddammit, he has right to be angry. He's so angry he can't even speak. But then Littlefinger gets shitty again and says he really should make Ned say it because it would be hilarious. But no, he will go to Janice Lynn for the quote-unquote love he bears Catelyn. God damn it, Littlefinger, I fucking hate you. He'll buy them all for Ned, and with that, Littlefinger pulls the dagger up and hands it to Ned, hilt first. And that is Game of Thrones Editor 13. And I'm left really with only one question as I finish this chapter summary. Emmett, can I punch a fictional character? I'm sure the minute Tony Stark develops that technology, Jeff... He'll allow you as his fellow gung-ho American capitalist to use it to punch the <sighs> After um, which I will use it to punch him. Yes. <laughs> but yes, as you conveyed so perfectly, this chapter hurts. Yeah. I don't mean that as a criticism, but it is difficult to reread. It's, it's pain with a purpose. It's just as good as the other late Ned chapters. But there is so much suffering and confusion in this one that it reaches a nightmarish tone that's really different from the mournful serenity we got in Ned in 12. Yeah. That, chapter, that chapter in the Godswood was where everything came to a head in terms of theme and character. Edward 13 is where the bottom falls out in terms of the larger plot, the big political picture. Without warning, the king is on his deathbed, and not only does that foretell a fight to fill the power vacuum, but Ned is screwed because his confrontation with Cersei was predicated on Robert coming back in one piece. He doesn't get much time to mourn, of course, instead immediately being beset by potential paths forward. Edward 13 is a perfect portrait of political chaos, as the center everyone was orbiting around, for better or worse, collapses, and everyone has to just figure out what to do. Yeah, I was I was surprised on this reread that it kind of runs a gamut of emotions. Like, it's very wrenching, like I was saying in, in the summary. But at the same time, there's a there's so much going on. It's so dense. Every single frame is filled with so much... <laughs> Sorry, um, but but no, it, it really it really is because it, it does run the gamut of emotions from like the kind of sadness and tragedy of of Robert dying and dying exactly when he does, which of course is George R. R. Martin extremely thumbing the scale to ensure Ned's downfall here. As we were saying in the last Edder chapter, if Robert at this point, if Robert lives another hour beyond where he is right now, then none of what we're about to experience in the Game of Thrones occurs. But at the same time, when it transitions to Ned and Renly and then Ned and Stannis and then Ned and Littlefinger, the motifs kind of shift. There is still that grief that is kind of back-ending and ensuring the foundation of this chapter here. But at the same time, it's very – it moves towards the conspiracy and the, and the politics very um, – in, in my opinion, the reason why this chapter is so excellent is because it does so very organically. It's not like 
we don't get like sharp scene contrast where like boom, Ned is in Robert's chambers, boom, Ned is talking with Riley, boom, boom, boom. It's all flowing from event to event to event in a very organic manner, which I find extremely satisfying whenever we read this chapter. Agree. You could argue this chapter is overstuffed compared to the last Ned chapter, which was very spare and focused. And this is the scene, Ned, Cersei, Godswood, this is what's at stake. But I, I agree. I think the overall sense you get from this chapter is someone who has to do politics while experiencing a waking nightmare. That every, the floor is just completely falling out from under Ned, and at this moment, he has to conspire. Which, as we've been saying in Ned chapters, I think he gets far too much heat for certain decisions he makes and good decisions he makes are overlooked and the timing is frequently ignored. But you also have to take into account just the, the shadow on his, his mind and soul when he's making the crucial decisions at the end of this chapter, given how this chapter starts. I mean, I called it a nightmarish tone. We start with a very literal nightmare and a, and a really horrific one that I had kind of forgotten about until I read yeah, this same, chapter. Same, same, I, yeah. Maybe I just had jumped forward to the meat of the chapter and rereads, but like, Lyanna's statue weeping blood, like, that is just such vivid, horrifying imagery, like, just imagining the stone moving and then the blood coming out. It's it's stigmata, almost, like, in, in I mean, it's Martin kind of calling back to his Catholic upbringing, where there is a, it's very it's very interesting if you, if you want to read about it, but, like, stigmata about certain statues, like, of the Virgin Mary, kind of weeping blood, it's something that we see a lot in Catholicism and in... And I'm not I'm not an expert. I know we have a, a number of folks who are uh, adherents to the to the Roman Catholic faith who listen to us who can probably expound on this, which which I'd love to see on Twitter afterwards, where people are like bring their kind of own expertise and experience in to talk about stuff. So if those of you who are Catholic listeners want to go and let us know about more about stigmata, that would be cool. But it is I think it's I think it's a callback to that. But I, I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, that's a great point, and that fits so well with. The general imagery surrounding Liana. Obviously, there's many kind of faiths and, and stories that influence the story of Rhaegar and Liana and John. But there is definitely a strong Catholic flair to how things yeah. go with Liana and John. And what makes this dream so powerful, this nightmare that starts the chapter, is it resonates with everything that follows. As Ned wakes up, he gets the sense that the nightmare is just still going because everything he sees is in the scene that follows reminds him of the Tower of Joy. He compares the he compares the three Kingsguard that are waiting outside Robert, Robert's uh, chambers to the ones who are waiting outside the Tower of Joy. Robert says, "Promise me, Ned," and Ned thinks to himself, "The lies we tell for love—the exact same echoes of that scene." And above all, of course, he's coming in to find Robert in a bed of blood, just like he found Liana in a bed of blood. It's that same imagery. It's 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 happening again. That's that, right. that horrible sense of kind of traumatic reawakening we've been talking about with these Ned chapters comes through so strongly here. That, I mean, Ned compares his realization that Robert is mortally wounded to a dream. Like, everything is moving slowly, he says. He's fixating on little details like Cersei's eyes and Robert's boots, just like you do in a dream. Mm-hmm. And it's, this is Martin expressing how Ned's past makes his present into this waking nightmare where everything echoes his pain back at him and he, he can't escape those horrible ghosts down in the crypts. And it feels, it feels like fate, really. That's what it comes comes yeah. down to when I reread this chapter. It feels like you know, time and space just interlocking perfectly. All these imagery and these connecting motifs between Ned's past and his present. While there's definitely strong continuity in terms of theme between this chapter and Edward 12, and with plot, of course, there is, yeah, that, that kind of nightmarish horror tone that is very distinct to this chapter. I think it's really fascinating that the same... It's, it's not just the same words that is being repeated back to him, the same words that Lyanna said, a promise be Ned, but it's the same sort of motif because mm-hmm. Robert says that in the context of 
keep my kids safe sort of thing. And I think it's very clear from the context and from stuff we see in Game of Thrones season six and season seven that Promise Me Ned was about saving another child, Jon Snow in this case. So that connective tissue that's pulling these two scenes together in Ned's mind is overt in terms of like the actual wording used, but it's also subtle too. And that's both talking about the same motif of saving children, which is going, which is such a fascinating and deep theme in Ned's storyline that really resonates in this reread, especially for me. But I mean, it, it, it's resonated for me always in the past, but this read especially. And, you know, it's, it's interesting too, that this chapter has the dream sequence of him being in the crypts of Winterfell and Ned's very first chapter in a Game of Thrones did some 43 episodes ago, so close to a year ago now, has Ned walking through the crypts of Winterfell with Robert and thinking that these statues are judging him and finally closes out with the final words of that chapter is, is that the statues all seem to be saying winter is coming. Here we get this line, the kings of winter watched him pass with eyes of ice and the dire wolves at their feet turning their great stone heads and snarled. So it's very clear to me that Ned is projecting some sort of disagreement that his ancestors and their diaries may have shared for him or some sort of feeling that they might disapprove of the kind of actions that he's taking in King's Landing. And again, it's really reemphasizing to me more than anything else, much like Eddard one, that Ned is not supposed to go south. Like he's in the wrong place. He's leaving Winterfell and he's leaving his true calling to, you know, of course, defend the realm from the invasion from the others behind him. But I don't want to get too far away from this chapter because this is a fantastic chapter here. I think you summed it up perfectly. There's that thing Osha says about Rob. He's marching the wrong way, that he's taking his army in, in the wrong direction to south instead of north. And you get that same sense with Ned, that, that dread, that trepidation. What it's all leading to is his death. It's the knowledge that by going south, he's guaranteeing that he's going to end up in that crypt. The crypt is coming for him. Winter is coming for him, as Catelyn mm -hmm. will say later on about her and her family. And he's slowly realizing that and all these images are leading him to that. All these images of, of death and loss and sorrow, they're all ushering him along to the grave too. And now he's gotten to a loss equally as horrible to him as Lyanna, the loss of Robert, his, his best friend, yeah. his, his brother in all but blood. And it's just, it's so critical to the story and to the themes that Cersei technically doesn't kill Robert, right. that Robert kills Robert. Cersei right. doesn't poison the wine. Cersei doesn't instruct Lancel to slit Robert's throat. Cersei doesn't make Robert do anything. She opens the door and lets him walk through it, and he does. Mm -hmm. All she does by providing that fortified wine that gets Robert that drunk is amplify the self-indulgent lifestyle that he's already addicted to. Mm-hmm. What kills Robert is what drove him into the melee that almost got him killed. That desperate desire to feel manly, to feel young, to feel like the man who won the throne again. All those themes of dreams decaying and disillusionment and youth going into age we've been talking about with Ned and Robert. This is the most vivid proof of it yet. Robert lying in his bed of blood and he's still talking about how he killed the boar and how he wants it for his feast. And what a badass he is still, <laughs> even as it got him killed, even as his entrails are sliding out of him onto the floor. And he's still smiling about that because he oh just gosh, can't, yeah. it can't let it go. Life's not worth living to him if he has to let that go. That's why he ordered Renly and Barristan to stand aside as he took the boar. If he hadn't done that, Cersei's plan might not have worked at all. Right. Remember what Robert said back in Ned's seventh chapter, you telling me these prancing cravens will let me win? Right. He just cannot stand that. And so he, he went to his death because he wanted a real fight. There's something so sad and perfect and pathetic about that. 
He's still mm-hmm. going on about the feast. A feast for crows, perhaps? Oh, shit. Oh! But it's, it's, it's the ultimate reveal that Robert's fatal sin is pride. And that's true yeah. of all the Baratheon brothers in very different ways. But for Robert, he, that image was more important to him than life itself. And that's, that's just such a statement on the image and on him as a character. There's a, we got that tweet from someone. I, I'm forgetting the person's uh, user handle. And I apologize for that if you're listening. But this person made the asked the question about whether Robert was engaging the boar because of the prancing jack and apes who wouldn't actually fight him in the melee. And I think it's a very strong case we made here that Robert is finally meeting someone who's not going to stand aside and let Robert like beat the shit out of him because he's the king. The boar doesn't give a shit if Robert's the king or not. The boar is just there because Robert has roused him from his lair and he's going to fight Robert because that's what boars do. He's following his nature. And I think it's a fantastic spot on point that what you're making of what you're making is that Robert got himself killed. Cersei opened the door, allowed him to drink a lot of wine, put him in a dangerous situation where he's drunk and he's fighting against a monstrous boar. And that's how he dies. But that's all Robert's doing. Robert could have stood aside. Robert shouldn't have gotten himself so fucking drunk that he got himself gored by a boar. And it's just, it, yeah, you're right. It's it's so sad, but pathetic at the same time. He's like, ah, oh, I put my knife through his eye. And you're like, uh, cool. Cool, man. You're fucking dying. Like, come on. Like, have a little, be a little serious right now. Grow up. Grow up, Robert. At some point, you got to grow up. No one wants right. to. No one's good at it. It takes us all various times, but you got to. And you're the king. Right. And he's just refusing to do it, even on his deathbed. Because, I mean, it's it's that same thing that drove him to the crypts in the first place at the beginning of the book, is that image of Robert's rebellion and that image of what was. And as, as I was saying in Edward 12, that really reframes what this is actually about. And it's not just about Stark and Baratheon versus Lannister, but about what has happened to this generation. Right. How do we get to the point that all you had to do to kill the king is get him a little more drunk than usual? That's right. all you had to do. Cersei didn't have to do anything more elaborate than that. And here we are with Robert on his deathbed and everything falling apart for Ned. Like, that's like, again, would, would, would the Robert of Ned's memory been so easy to take down? And, no. I, and, and I think you made a great point that what Robert was looking for was an animal because, in, because nature doesn't care that he's the king. Yeah. So he can he can finally just be a man again. And that exact moment, he became mortal again. Right. He's no longer untouchable. He will no longer be avoided in the melee. So, yeah, you can die like anyone else. That's what nature is, Robert. Robert, though, is still the same guy who is is all man, right? And he does have an interesting moment where he <laughs> he's not going to take some drugs as, when when they're offered to him because he's he's more man than that. At least at the at the moment, he's he's got worse as he'll bed first. It's it's worth noting that for all the wrong we've seen Robert do in this book, for all that we'll learn some more really hideous details via Cersei's POV and the Feast for Crows. And for all that he is still clinging to that same damn high school jock dream, even when he is spitting blood, the author is determined to grant Robert Baratheon first of his name a note of grace as he dies. He goes out of his way to make this happen. Robert turns to Ned, the man who is always right, to help him do one thing right before the end. And that's really not something that's actually afforded to many people in A Song of Ice and Fire, this grace note at the end where you get to do the right thing and be your best self. Maester Lewin arguably gets that. He gets to see Bran and Rickon alive and well mm-hmm. before receiving mercy in the godswood. That's a very kind of calm, contemplative 
quote-unquote good death, if there is such a thing to have. I'm sure Corrin Halfhand felt some grim, sober Corrin Halfhand-esque satisfaction <laughs> when John killed him. Uh, other than that, I'm running out, man. There's not Peace is not something many people get at the end in this series. It's not something Renly gets. It's probably not something Stannis is going to get. No. I mean, these Baratheons with their, quote, queer notions of being kings, as Elena said, they're always reaching for something they can't have. Robert is kind of finally realizing that. And, you know, what Robert values about Ned is, in that same thing we were talking about with the boar, is that Ned treats him like a man, not just a crown. He treats him like a brother, like a friend, like a person, not just the guy who holds the seat of power. And what Robert realizes is you're the only one. My brother, my Kingsguard, my wife, everyone around me, no one cared. No one was concerned with saving my soul. No one was concerned if I was a good person, a good king. No one gave a damn about that, and so I wasn't. You were the only one, and so at the end, I want to be like you. Now, obviously, a deathbed conversion is less good <laughs> than having not ordered the assassination of children in the first place. Sure. Ideally, ideally, you just don't do that. <laughs> but I think it is worth noting how Martin constructs the scene that it's only after Robert tries to rescind the order, says... Save her life if you can. I was wrong to do this. The gods sent this punishment to me for doing this. And only at that point does Ned say that the gods will have mercy on Robert. Hmm. And I think that's the perfect construction of it, that I think the author's trying to get across maybe some of his last Catholicism, like you say, coming to the fore, that Robert has embraced the true way at the end and that God will have mercy on him. And that if hmm. there is a pleasant afterlife to be had, maybe Robert will have it. Who knows? But you do kind of get that sense coming through here. No, that's that's fantastic. I didn't. I never thought about it as like a deathbed confession, like in a religious sense for Robert. But I think it's super spot on, and I love your point that Ned tells Robert after Robert rescinds his order to kill Daenerys that the gods will give him mercy. I think that's that's beautiful. Really, I mean, I think it's it's a fantastic point. What's not beautiful is is how all of these people are hovering around Robert, still enabling him until the end. Right? You got Pycelle offering him milk of the poppy. You've got Cersei being like, oh, my sweet husband, my sweet Robert, all in sincerity. And you've got Renly there too. He's talking about like, my God, he put his knife through the boar's eye at the very end. Holy shit, man. That's fucking rad. I mean, not totally in that tone. I, I get it. The only person who's not enabling Robert at the until the very end is Ned. And that is the person that Robert respects the most, the person that he wants to be alone with for a moment, if just a few moments so he can have some truth, some truth in his life from his best friend, from a person who views him, like you said so well, more than a crown as a person, as a human being, as Robert Baratheon as he was in his youth and Robert Baratheon as he is now at the end of all things. And I do love that Ned kind of is still Ned-like. He's not offering sweet sort of like, hey, you're going to be just fine, bro. You're going to make it through here. Like Ned is so heartbroken. He's like, Robert, you can't tie. You can't leave me like you are right now. Like it's, it feels weirdly, where's the sounds? It feels like a husband and wife when one of the partners is on their deathbed and it's so sweet and sad at the same time. We're like, don't, don't leave me. Don't leave me, babe. Don't leave me. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the same sense of being angry at them too. Like when Ned starts by saying, damn you, Robert, that's the first thing he says when they're alone. Why do you have to be so headstrong? That sense of anger of how could you leave me? How could you be so irresponsible? You broke what we had together. I mean, we've talked about Ned and Robert as having kind of echoes of even more than a romantic relationship, just a specifically married relationship before. Yeah. And I do think that definitely comes through in this scene. And you're right, the Ned is, it's a tough balance Ned is striking because he's giving Robert some hard truths. 
but he's also giving him mercy by sparing Robert the truth about his kids mm. at the end. He realizes it's this is not going to do any good now. Yeah, all all this would do is put another dagger in his heart, and I just can't do it. I can't do it to him. And that that's just that's such a beautiful emotional moment, and it, it's really touching that after worrying so much in Edward Twelve that wow, Robert's going to be another heiress if I tell him about this. He's going to be another mad king. We've gone full circle. He reassures Robert at the end, no, you are not heiress. Whatever yeah. you did in your life, whatever horrible mistakes you've made, you were not him. I promise you were not him. Right. And that's exactly what Robert needs, and that's another kind of mercy. And But as you say, all the other people around him are, like, Renly's just, yeah, lost in the image. That's just classic Renly that he's like, oh, wow. As the intros were starting out, he still slew the boar, and you get to see the shine in his eyes. And it's like, buddy... It's not. It's not the takeaway here. Maybe you learn a different lesson right. from your brother here, who everyone keeps comparing you to. And then I love how Varus just shows up, like in the, in the middle of a sentence. Varus shows up. No one hears him approach. It's just he suddenly is speaking, and he's suddenly there. I wonder, Sir Varus, who gave the king this wine? And he just appears. That's just such, such classic Varus stuff. But even he is just like doing the virus thing of, with innuendo and, and phrases to hint at what's going on. He's not actually yeah. taking any steps to change the situation at all. And there is, I mean, as we said, this chapter is definitely more ambitious, has a lot more on its mind than Edward Twelve, so it does, I think, overreach in a couple respects. Yeah. Like, the, the scene with Ned and Renly that follows the deathbed scene. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk more at length about this scene at the end of the episode, but what I want to note here is that I actually prefer this scene in the show, the version yep. we get. That is, it is a major a major change in Game of Thrones is that throughout season one, Renly is building up to the decision to crown himself. Right. Uh, whereas in the books, not only is he offstage because he's not a POV character and POV characters aren't really hanging around him much, but plan A is 100% getting Robert to marry Marjorie and Renly crowning himself as plan B. In the show, right. he's building up to a case for himself as king the whole first season. And this scene with Ned, Renly openly proposes that he, Renly, should be the next king. Yeah. And that he, he dismisses Stannis as politically untenable, which, boy, are we going to have fun with that concept <laughs> when we get to Clash and Storm. As you hinted in your synopsis with that excellent essay you wrote about how Stannis is not, in fact, as iron or inflexible as, as reputation suggests. And yeah, I mean, the main reason Stannis is politically untenable is not that he's grouchy or mean or lives on a volcano island. It's that he right. doesn't take or give bribes. And that pisses everybody off. <laughs> but we'll get into that. It, so in the show, Renly dismisses Stannis and openly puts himself forward as king. Ned responds by being kind of spooked by that and yeah. saying no. In in the books, in this chapter, chapter 13, Renly's plan, and we'll get into this again a little more later, doesn't make much sense. No. Ned never brings up Stannis for really no reason. He really should say this in someone's conversation. Hey, remember your brother? Your right. other brother, the non-dead one? He's got 5,000 men. He's half a day sail away. I'm reaching out to him. Maybe we can do a thing. Ned doesn't recruit. I understand why Ned doesn't want to do what Renly's proposing in the moment, but Ned doesn't recruit Renly for another task. He doesn't right. say, hey, here's what I want those hundred swords for. Yet later on, he acts very aggrieved when Renly flees as if they had a deal, when in fact they didn't. <laughs> wow, are you so defending I, Renly here? I'm, I'm not defending Renly. I'm merely <laughs> saying it's more coherent in the show because it makes sense why Ned refuses Renly in the show. Yeah. Because Renly yeah, has agree. offered to crown himself, and for Ned, that's that's going too far. And at least they address the issue of Stannis. So I, f- I think this scene is, again, where you feel kind of Martin pushing a lot of stuff into this chapter, working yeah. out the timing for Renly. I don't think this is necessarily the best executed. No, I think you're you're right. Is that It's not the best executed. Like, it feels to me more like a, not a last temptation of Dead Star, because that's going to come when Littlefinger comes in the next thing. But it's almost like, 
one of the temptations that Ned Stark has to quote unquote resist before he progresses on to his ultimate demise. I, I think like the show does a better job in both kind of ironing out some of the wrinkles, as you've well pointed out from Renly's dialogue with Ned Stark, because I, I agree. I, I mean, I love that scene from the show where Renly comes up to Ned and like surprises him. Like they're like walking like in uh, a hallway and it's like, Lord Stark. And Ned like jumps like around, like with like and his men jump around with like their swords in hand, thinking that they're about to be like jumped by the Lasters or something like that. But it's Renly and Renly goes on. Well, you know, Robert's going to be dead and uh, I should be king. And, and that's like you, you raises yeah. an eyebrow. Yeah, right. No, it's, it's, it's really good. And I think, some of the stuff, and, and one of the, one of the things in, in defense of the show, season one especially, is that I love the kind of contouring of these characters that we don't get because of the POV structure from A Game of Thrones. Because we get the scene with Renly and Loras. Loras is the one kind of tempting Renly to be like, "Well, you know, you're a good king. You're a good guy. You, we need good men as kings. We don't need any more of these bad men as, as kings." And I get some of it is a bit kind of what's what's a what's Jim. Our friend, something like a lawyer, says it's uh, it's fix fix is how is how he pronounce it calls it for Renly. Like they try to make Renly to be like much more of an honorable, moral person in the in the show. But I do think it helps us to understand Renly's motivations a bit more here. Whereas here, it's like, what is Renly's actual plan? We will again talk about that towards the end of this this podcast, but or at the end of this episode rather. But it's it's just yeah it, it's not as good in the in the book. But I do agree that one of the reasons why it might not be as good is that Martin's trying to stuff a ton of things into a ton of things into this scene. Yes, well, I don't care for the overall direction they're going for Renly in the show because it was to set up a, a contrast with Stannis that I find enraging compared to what happens in the books. <laughs> show Renly is coherent in his own right. Yes, like they, they they do set him up in season one. They do have those scenes you're talking about with Loras or with Robert in the woods. It does, it does add up, albeit to a completely different character. So, but as you say, that's the second temptation of Ned, the first temptation being Cersei and the Godswood. And then we get to the third and final temptation of Ned with Littlefinger. And of course, the chapter builds to this. It has to. The desperate, true believer Ned Stark versus the hardened, cynic Peter Baelish. All the themes of disillusionment and honor versus justice and the truth and hard power versus soft power, that's all coming together right here in Ned versus Littlefinger. Mm-hmm. And I think... As with Varus in the Black Cells, a couple net chapters from now, we have to really keep in mind that we don't have to take Littlefinger at face value here, and we probably shouldn't. Like, no. especially coming back as rereaders, when we know the truth about who poisoned John Aaron, like Littlefinger's protesting, the realm will bleed if Ned tells the truth. <laughs> as if Littlefinger had not set Stark and Lannister against each other in the first place. Yep. Guaranteeing that the realm would bleed. Like, he's not actively contributing to that process all along and wants <laughs> it as his... his ladder of chaos decline. So when I see people like say that yes, Ned should have taken these offers if he had this advice in the name of peace, you have to consider who's giving the advice and why. Yeah. What what is Littlefinger saying and what is he trying to accomplish? War is inevitable at this point, especially since Littlefinger, when he talks about like we can remove Joffrey later if he proves troublesome and put Renly on the throne, Littlefinger is no way of getting Renly to go along with that plan. Right. Being the backup and holding out for maybe being king one day. Like, he has, he has no sway over Renly as far as we know. That's that's a complete fabrication. When Littlefinger talks about well, all these factions who would rise up under Stannis and cause problems, they're all going to do that anyway. Right. Like, he, sa- he said, oh, the, the Tywin would rise up. Tywin's going to rise up if you kidnap Cersei and Joffrey, too. Mm-hmm. Or the Greyjoys might rise up. They're already planning to do that anyway. The, the, <laughs> the South, who fought for Eris, might rise up. They're about to do that under Renly. 
So all these all these nightmare conditions that Littlefinger is describing are what's exactly going to happen anyway. I think he gives himself away when he acknowledges that Stannis would appoint a whole new small council. Like it's <laughs> it's his own position that Littlefinger is worried about here. As with Varys and the Black Cells talking about Stannis, Stannis is king with Britain. All the capitals conspire with at once, so they all have an interest in keeping him off the throne. I find it fascinating on this reread how Ned just lets Littlefinger just talk for like paragraphs. I'm, I'm talking mm-hmm. like four or five paragraphs straight. Littlefinger is just monologuing and monologuing and monologuing. What is, like the first thing that just that just comes right off the bat is that Ned tells Littlefinger that he knows the truth why John Aaron died. And I do have to wonder whether like Baelish like kind of like set up a little bit. Oh, you know the truth? That's interesting, right? Oh, go on. Yeah. What, what truth? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like the same scene we're going to get with Ned with a. Uh, Littlefinger and Tyrion in the Clash of Kings, where uh, yes, they talk about absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, but then he says, "Well, because you know the the children are are from Jamie Lannister." And then the line is shocking. Littlefinger said in a voice that not at all sounded shocking. And Ned, as much as I love the guy, has to be like this guy knew that the kids were not Jamie and Cersei's all along. Do I really want him on my side? Because why was he keeping this very vital piece of information from me? For seven chapters that I've been in King's Landing at this point, it's really fucking bad that you you're you did that. But he doesn't bring it up because Littlefinger just keeps talking. And then one of the craziest things that Littlefinger suggests to Ned is, ah, well, just you know, marry Sansa to Joffrey. And also, while you're at it, let's go beyond what you originally bargained with Robert Baratheon for. Let's get Arya to marry Tommen, and you know, let's marry your heir, Rob Stark to Marcella, and you're like, wait a minute. Ned has just told you that these are children born of incest. They are not actually the heirs of Robert Baratheon, and you want me to marry my own children to them? Like, come on. Like, that's insane. And it obviously pisses Ned off to no end because it's supposed to piss Ned off. I think we had, you brought that up in before we started recording, that everything that Littlefinger is doing here is intended to piss Ned Stark off. Given especially how well Peter Baelish knows Ned Stark at this point, you can see that I think that he's deliberately pushing that away. I don't think Littlefinger expects Ned to take this offer. I don't no. think this offer is being made in remotely good faith. The Mockingbird is just playing with his prey at this point. He's already made a decision to turn on Ned. He's guaranteeing Ned will make the decisions that lead to his downfall. And you get this overall thematic clash about, you know, honor versus crude Machiavellian politics. And like I said, I think you have to Keep in mind Littlefinger's perspective and interests that undergird what he's saying here. And I think that's Martin commenting that people who advocate crude Machiavellianism are really just trying to get their way the quickest way they possibly can. I think that's the way with both Tywin and Littlefinger. There's not actually a higher ethos there. They're just they're just grabbing as much as they possibly can and justifying it afterwards. Mm-hmm. And look, while Littlefinger is absolutely a glib asshole whose superficial <laughs> attitude is both annoying and unfounded. For example, when he talks about the gold cloaks following just whoever pays them. That's not true. We see during the Dance of the Dragons, they have this strong loyalty to Daemon Targaryen personally. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of them having an ideology and interest beyond just money. So while little that sort of thing is the reason we hate him, <laughs> as a Littlefinger, I will say he does have one point here that is right. <gasps> exactly. I, I look forward to being driven from the fandom of the world, just for <laughs> suggesting such a thing. But when he says to Ned that, look at you, look at what you're doing here. You know why you called me into this room. You know what you want me to do, but you can't say it. That's just silly. And he's right. That is silly. It is mm-hmm. hypocritical for Ned to not even be able to say what he wants Littlefinger to do. That's just kind of ridiculous and shallow that he like, 
Ned, you are embracing this move. You are bending the rules and you are right to do it, as you were with writing my heir in Robert's Will instead of my son Joffrey, mm-hmm. as he does earlier in the chapter. That was also an example of not doing exactly correct 100% the thing <laughs> that you're supposed to do according to the rules. But it was still overall the right thing to do. So if you're going to do that, do it. Don't pretend to yourself it's not what you're doing. Embrace what you're doing. And as I've said before, I think Davos is kind of the instructive counterexample to Ned in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because when Davos when Davos goes to the other Kingsmen on Dragonstone to help him get Edric Stormont, he tells them, I don't need knights. I don't need perfect people who obey the rules and go out with their slashing swords. I need smugglers. Are you <laughs> with me or no? And that, I, I, I obviously love that whole scene. I love all Davos scenes. But I think it is, is worth noting that Ned is kind of in this quandary here where he is going outside of his comfort zone, but can't really embrace that's what he's doing. And I think that's part of what gets him into trouble. Ned Stark is known for his honesty, although, of course, that is he thinks of himself as living with the lies that he's told for so many years. And he's known for his honor as well. The Honorable Ned Stark as Stannis will thunder at Jon Snow in A Dance of Dragons. And honor has its price here, as, as Stannis will also say to, to Jon in A Dance of Dragons. The thing, though, is that you're right, is that Ned should have been up front and been like, yeah, I, I do need you to get the gold cloaks to come to my side so that we can ensure that Joffrey doesn't take the Iron Throne when Robert dies. That is both – I mean, I, I think Ned needs to come to grips with it himself, that he's making a move that he's – he has to make. Um, I don't think it uh, – the thing about it though is I don't think it necessarily changes the outcome of what happens if Ned Stark admits it. And I, and I know you're not saying that. Oh, I um, agree. But yeah, you're 100% it, right. But I think Ned has to be honest with himself and honest with what he's doing here and be willing to bend the rules, so to speak, not necessarily break them. I mean, Ned is still acting morally here, I would I would argue. That, no, that's the distinction. I think Littlefinger is, is catching Ned on that kind of a shallow gotcha, accurate but shallow, and right. he's missing the larger moral code. Because when he said that Ned hopes that his honor will protect him, that's not actually true. Ned hopes his honor will protect innocence. Yes. He hopes his honor will be able to protect the children. That's what he's trying to do, because that's what heroes do. Hmm. So I think I think that is the classic Littlefinger Ned dynamic, where Littlefinger, even when he's right, he shouldn't be. And you can right. see Martin making the critique of a, of a political system that has allowed Littlefinger to be correct about things. And mm-hmm. wanting his characters to navigate them more effectively doesn't mean he wants them to do it less morally, is what I would right. say. Yeah, 100% true. 100% true. This is a shitty political paradigm which allows people like Littlefinger to thrive in because they can exploit people and of course get them on their little gotcha moments and yeah but I think that about transitions us to our foreshadowing groundwork portion of this podcast absolutely yeah this isn't the only time that Martin focuses on a king's will in A Song of Ice and Fire we also see Rob deliberate over his will right before arriving at the twins for the red wedding and what's interesting here is that in many ways and we're going to get into this as we go through the series Rob and John are a distorted echo of Robert and Stannis. There's, there's <laughs> a lot that those individuals have in common with each other and the relationships have in common with each other. And while Rob, in the Storm of Swords, deliberately names his Stannis figure, his sullen overshadowed brother, as his heir, Robert inadvertently does so. Thanks mm-hmm. to Ned's intervention in writing my heir instead of my son Joffrey, Robert does it without knowing. I think that's a great example of what these relationships have in common and what they don't, because... Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob and John have this kind of this bond and they get along and they really love and care about each other in the way that Robert and Stannis' relationship always kind of was strained yes. and, and difficult and never quite worked. So I think you can see that – I think you see Martin working out that relationship in a slightly different context once you get to Rob's role in the Storm of Swords. Yeah. I mean 
Melisandre, as we've said before, makes the connection between John and Stannis. And I think Rob and Robert both share a naming, a similar naming convention. But they also kind of share the, the firstborn, headstrong, the military commander. So there is, are definite parallels here and definitely the will that Rob writes naming John as his heir in A Storm of Swords. That he that Rob is foresight enough to name John as his his heir. So thankful that he did it right before the red wedding, right? I mean, if you th- if you think about it, like right under the wire there, buddy. Yeah, you got, it's a photo finish for Rob Rob Stark. Well, and that's the great irony, right? Is because he does it because he thinks he might die in battle. He thinks mm-hmm. he might die taking Kaelin away from Victorian's men, but he doesn't even get that far. No, it's almost like the red wedding is really well written or something. Anyway, yeah, it's weird, right? We'll get to that in a storm of swords. But <laughs> speaking of parallels with the One True King. As we've mentioned a few times before, it really seems like after Ned and Robert both died in this book, Martin missed the dynamic, that rich emotional back and forth we've been talking about in this episode and elsewhere, and partially recreated it with Davos and Stannis. Obviously, there are some significant differences there, but when Robert says to Ned, no one to tell me no but you regarding the murder of a child, I mean, that really sounds like the Dragonstone <laughs> storyline in the Storm of Swords to me, with the child being Edric Storm in that case. So I, I feel like Martin... As he wrote Clash and Storm, as he started thinking about Stannis and Davos' characters and develop, developing them, conceived them in part as a way to expand on the same themes and emotions we get in Ned and Robert's relationship. But kind of like an interesting um, non-parallel, though, Robert regrets his decision to order the deaths of Daenerys and Viserys. And he orders a countermands his, or his own order to, to Ned, which of course doesn't pan out as we're going to find out in the next Danny chapter. Not necessarily the case between Davos and Stannis, where Stannis is like, my order is done. We will not be burning any more children. No, I was totally wrong to think about that at one point in time. And like, as you put it out so well in, in many other uh, venues, that fact that Stannis is never like, I was so wrong. I will never do that again, has a lot of implications for another child that, of course, Stannis is going to burn probably close to the end of the series, I would imagine. That child, of course, being Shireen Baratheon, his own daughter. Yeah, it's a very telling omission that Martin has Stannis say, I was wrong about how I conceived of kingship. I was wrong to think of my rights before my duty. And now I'm Davos was right that I should focus on doing good things to win people over and prove that I'm a good king. But he never says, I was wrong to consider burning my nephew alive. Those words mm-hmm. never escaped his lips. And I think that's very deliberate on Martin's part to, to keep the keep that thought in Stannis' head so that when it comes comes time to Shireen. That's the, the classic Stannis dynamic where everything good about him leads to everything bad about him and everything bad about him leads to everything good about him and it's all, yes. it's all it's just so inextricable and all kind of has that, that tone of dread to it. Speaking of which, we do get a little note about Stannis' castle here as well, the uh, Dragonstone, which has been mentioned a couple times in the series but never described. And we, when, when Tomar is all apprehensive about going there, Ned thinks to himself, the island fortress of House Targaryen had a sinister repeat. <laughs> And for good reason, because Dragonstone is, is wonderfully terrifying in metal. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I can't wait to get to it in Clash and Storm, because it is one of my favorite settings in this series, even putting aside how much I love the scenes that take place there. It's just a great setting. It's not just that it's just terrifying as it visually. I mean, it is that. I mean, the gargoyles, I remember that very vividly when I first read Clash of Kings. Oh, yeah. Uh, of, of the gargoyles that Crescent is, is looking out over when he, he's looking at the Red Comet. But it's also all the events that happen at Dragonstone. I mean, if you read Fire and Blood Volume 1... And you find out that Rhaenyra Targaryen was eaten by a dragon on Dragonstone itself by yeah. Sunfire. You're like, oh, oh, yeah. Sinister repute is not just about what it looks like, but also about all the horrendous shit that's happened on Dragonstone. 
in the hundreds of years that the Targaryens have been running it and the dozen or so years that the, the Baratheons have been running it. Which, of course, they haven't, there hasn't been necessarily too many awful things that have happened in Dragonstone so far. Of course, that's all going to be changing when Melisandre makes her a grand appearance on Dragonstone and we start burning people and potentially sacrificing nephews, as we talked about before. Yeah. It has a lot in common with Harrenhal in that way. And again, we'll be spending a lot more time on this in Clash of Kings when we're introduced to both Dragonstone and Harrenhal. But mm-hmm. I guess we got to discuss the other Baratheon that are dead. <sighs> well, Renly. Renly is framed as uh, Robert's ghost in this chapter. Uh, Ned describes him that way. When, when, once they leave the deathbed, is Renly looking as though Robert's ghost just suddenly summoned and was appeared. And Mark will come back to that idea when we see Renly again in the Clash of Kings at the Bitterbridge tourney. Catelyn describes him there with this very memorable phrase, a ghost in a golden crown. And I think that's, that's a great way of getting out what Renly is, is that he's just the image, he's the memory, the kind of poisonous nostalgia that we've been talking about over the last couple of Ned chapters that promises happiness and deliverance and the good life, but when you peel back the layers, there's really nothing there. Renly just kind of embodies that. And I, yeah. Obviously, again, we're going to get get into this a lot more in the Clash of Kings, but the very fact that Renly's already been described as a ghost, as an image, as something insubstantial, kind of already gets across. I think what Martin's going for there. Here's a question I have for you: um, Do you think, and and I, I actually think the answer is yes, so I'll preface it with that. Do you think that Martin already had Renly's death in mind? Because what is Renly at the end of a Clash of Kings in the Battle of the Blackwater? It's Renly's ghost who is riding through. Stannis's camp or Stannis's battle lines. Of course, it's Garland Tyrell in Renly's armor, uh, as as we find out in A Storm of Swords. I do wonder whether the constant imagery of Renly as a ghost, ghost, ghost kind of acts as foreshadowing for Renly's death in kind of the same way ghost being John's direwolf potentially works to symbolize John's death and foreshadow that. I think that what Martin is getting at here is that Renly is not going to necessarily last that much longer. And really, he's got at most, like six months from this point in the story until he finally gets his just comeuppance in the form of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be fun. Oh my gosh, yeah. I think it's probably the case that Martin already had Renly's death plan because by the time you get to the end of this book, Renly has already gathered a gigantic army at Highgarden and is right. calling the, the Lords of Reach and Stormlands to him. So you're already setting up that something has to happen for Renly to lose. Otherwise, how is this gigantic army going to be stopped? So I don't know if Martin had the details worked out with the Shadow Baby yet when he was writing the first book, but I think he already probably had in mind that Renly was going to have a brief rise and then get pumped. Yeah. So I, that, that's my general bet for the structure. We're, we're so sympathetic. We're going to have to bring on an actual human being when we do this scene because we're going to come off as, as, as so jaded and sneering when we get to Renly's death. So we got to bring on Joe the Magician, or Joe Magician as he's known for that, right. that chapter maybe. We'll have to we'll, remind we'll, us uh, of our humanity. Right, exactly. And have someone who could be like, well, actually, you know, it's not great that someone got murdered there in that tent. But is and we'll it? be like, is it though? Exactly. <laughs> so staying on the topic of Renly, shifting into our theory slash discussion portion of the episode, as we were alluding to earlier, question we're dealing with this week is, should Ned have taken Renly's offer? What was Renly really up to here? Did Ned make a mistake by rejecting this? And I think we can come down, as we did with the question in Ender 12, Fuck no. Fuck no. First of all, Renly is not actually offering a solution here. Like, at best, he's giving you short-term control of the body of the king, which is not insignificant. Mm -hmm. 
But Renly's hundred swords offer no guarantee of the gold cloaks coming along. Nor nor can he offer protection from Stannis or Tywin when they inevitably come calling. Look at how Tywin reacted to Tyrion being kidnapped. How do you think he's going to react to Cersei and Joffrey right. being kidnapped, the foundation of his Lannister dynasty? Stannis is a quick sail away and will unhesitatingly cut both Renly and Ned down to get at Cersei and her children when he hears what's happened. Mm-hmm. And even if, best case scenario, if merely holding Joffrey produces a political cascade favor to the new regent and his ally Renly Baratheon, Joff is not an infant. Like, he's old enough to realize what you just did. He's old enough to realize you just kidnapped him and his mother to seize control of the throne. He is not known for letting things go. (laughs) What happens when he grows up? He's not that far away from his adulthood. You think he's just going to turn to Ned and Renly and be like, good job, lads. I'll take over from here. Right. He's, he's definitely going to want both of them dead. It's so fascinating to me in the fandom that people look at Renly's offer and be like, wow, man, Ned was such an idiot not to take that offer up. And I kind of scratched my head, even from a purely objective, keep my dislike of Renly Baratheon out of the equation of being like, no, I mean, it's it's not great for it's, – it's not great for Ned. It's not really – long-term great for Renly, if you think about it. I mean, it seems like a very short-term solution. And the thing it really kind of reminded me of more than anything else when I reread this chapter is strangely reminded me of Cersei's offer to Ned that, ah, well, you know, just let things go and we can have sex and stuff like that. It was a very short-term solution that kind of gets Ned off, off Cersei's back at that point and kind of gets Ned to back Renly temporarily, but it's not long-term because yeah, Stannis will come, Tywin will come. Who knows what the Tyrells would do? I mean, you would assume that the Tyrells would support Renly given the kind of overtures that Renly is making to the Tyrells and to Highgarden at that point. I mean, that's the thing. This plan that is putting, Renly's putting forward doesn't match his behavior to date. Right. Renly's moved so far in this book has been to remove Cersei and the Lannisters from the seat and bed of royal authority in favor of Marjorie and the Tyrells. I mean, him showing Ned the picture of Marjorie may have indicated Renly's desire to get Ned to go along with his plan at some point, you know, asking Ned to compare Marjorie to Lyanna. But now, Renly doesn't even mention Tyrell power no. or his own vassals in the Stormlands. So would he be able to bring them to the table if he's stuck in King's Landing? Would the Tyrells be up for this plan of making war on both Tywin and Stannis at once just to bend the knee to the Lannisters anyway? Right. I mean, they end up joining the Lannisters in the Storm of Swords, but that's after the circumstances have changed greatly, mm-hmm. including Renly's own death. So I don't get the sense Renly would be able to bring much more than his own hundred swords to the table here. I, yeah, I think you're. I think you're right because if you think about it, Renly's whole plan is to put plant Marjorie in Robert's bed and to set Cersei aside, and that would allow the potential for a Tyrell Baratheon child being born from Robert and Marjorie to potentially, maybe, possibly inherit the Iron Throne, especially if you bring to the fore. The, the knowledge that Renly almost certainly has that Robert's kids are not his own, that they're – his kids with Cersei, that is, are not his own, that they're bastards born of incest. Would the Tyrells then be like okay with Joffrey still being the king in that case? No. I, I don't see that. I mean the whole idea as Elena Tyrell puts it really nicely in Sansa's first Storm of Swords chapter is that – Mace Tyrell wants his grandson to sit the Iron Throne. That's the reason why he joined up with the Lannisters. Having Joffrey still be the king ensures that the Tyrells won't have the ability to have a a son of theirs on the Iron Throne. Now, you can make the leap, and it's a really big leap, that ultimately Renly is here is proposing. They take Joffrey into power, then they reveal his bastardy, then Renly marries Marjorie, and then there's a son or something born through the union with Marjorie and Renly. But that, it seems like a pretty 
big leap here, especially given that Renly, as you mentioned, is not even talking about the Tyrells and having the Ty- and bringing the Tyrells into the equation of saying we can – okay, well, if Jamie is coming down – because that's one of the things that Ned talks about in this chapter is that Jamie could be coming down with an army to King's Landing right now. Renly could have been like, I will bring the Tyrells up and we will confront the Lancers on the field of battle. And Ned would have been like, okay, that's feasible if not – Especially moral. I mean, it's not very pragmatic, pragmatic for on, on Renly's part. The very fact that Renly isn't offering what he actually has on the table leads me to the central question: Is this offer being made in good faith? And as you were comparing it to Cersei's offer in Ned's last chapter, or I could compare it to Littlefinger's later in this one, I think the answer is no. That none of these three temptations of Ned Stark are actually being made in good faith and are actually the right call. What Renly is trying to do here is use Ned as a blunt instrument against Cersei. In much the same way that he will allow Rob to do the hard work of fighting the Lannisters in the Clash of Kings while taking his sweet time on the progression from Highgarden. Mm-hmm. We were talking about the way Renly is being described here as Robert's ghost. Part of me thinks that is a hint that he's already moved on to plan, plan B in his mind. Yeah. He's already thinking of crowning himself and marrying Marjorie as the backup now that Robert's dead. And given how gung-ho Renly was about assassinating Viserys and Daenerys, as we covered in Edward Eight, I don't think he'd be more merciful to Cersei and her kids at that point. No. And since Ned wouldn't be on board with that, I think Ned would be removed as well. As you were saying, I think it's like Cersei. Renly is trying to gain control of King's Landing in the very, very short term so he can carry out his actual plan. And Ned is useful in terms of gaining control of the city, but once the actual plan comes to the fore, Ned's got to go. But I think, yeah, the overall takeaway is regardless of whether these conspiracies are working together in concert or whether they're separate, Ned, on the whole, I think is right to avoid all of them and not hitch his wagon to any one of those particular stars and to try to forge his own path. I think he ultimately came up short on actually making that happen, but I do think that is the right way to go. And I, I don't think the takeaway from a Game of Thrones editor 13 is that Ned should have said yes to any of these offers. Totally, 100% agree. And I think that is a good place to conclude on agreement, as we are so wont to do in this podcast, right? So thank you so much for everyone for listening to this podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play. Check out our Patreon if you're not already at patreon.com forward slash Nautacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us at Nautacast A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter or shoot us an email at Nautacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me at porkquinton.tumblr.com or at porkquinton on Twitter. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. So join us next time as Jon Snow is still in this book somehow. I, I forgot he even existed at this point. Remember him? It's like it's like that Danny chapter from last year. We're like, oh yeah, Danny's in this chapter in this book too. But John is also here too. And what John is going to be doing is he's going to be saying his vows and officially joining the Night's Watch in the Game of Thrones John Six, which is going to be so much fun. So thanks for listening, and we will see you guys next time.